The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on February 7th, 2021, uh, and I'm joined today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart, as always. Hey, Adam. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I have my long johns on and my wool uh, wool socks, and I'm I'm even just in my house, so it's uh, it's so cold outside right now that uh, that uh, that I'm I'm all bundled up. But as they say, uh, there's no such thing as too cold. There's just not dressed properly, and I think there that is go. absolutely the case here this week in Alberta, where we are in the midst of the deep, not the deepest of deep freezes, but a very deep freeze. Absolutely, yeah. I'm definitely layered up as well. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined today uh, by our guest, uh, Kevin Van Tiggum, uh, author, conservationist, conservation activist. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Excellent. Um, how, how are things going where you are? Is it, is it just as cold? It's very cold, but you know, uh, when you complain about the cold, it just means you forgot what it means to be a Canadian, right? There you go. That's 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 a that's a that's a good way of looking at it. Um, so uh, we're we're uh, we're we're thrilled. We're very excited to have you have you on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about probably one of the biggest issues in Alberta politics today. I would say it's something that has uh, it's been building for about know, just just almost a year. Uh, but over the past couple couple weeks, couple months, it's really caught up steam. Uh, and what I'm or really built up steam. And and what I'm talking about is the debate and opposition and concern uh, over uh, the expansion of open open pit coal mining in the eastern slopes of the Rockies, so the foothills in the Rockies. And one of the key issues that 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 is uh, is in this debate or that 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 is uh, is key central to this debate is the provincial government's um, unilateral decision last summer done without consultation to rescind the 1976 coal policy, which was a policy put in by the government of Peter Lougheed back in 1976. So as we jump into this issue, Kevin, you've been very involved. You've been very vocal about this. Um, you know a lot about this, the, the parts of the province that uh, where, where this policy was rescinding this policy is going to have an impact. Can you tell us a bit about what the, what was the, what was the 1976 coal policy for, for listeners who might not, might, might be aware of the issue, but might not know exactly what the, what the, the details of the debate are? Well, the, uh, the coal policy was one of a number of uh, policy initiatives that Peter Lougheed and his government brought in when they first came into power. They were a very ambitious and forward-looking government. Um, uh, they, they, they came in planning to take us out of the dark ages and move us into the future. And, and to do that, they wanted to do it right. They, they, I don't think we've had um, quite that visionary government ever since, or probably before. So uh, they wanted to do things right. They wanted to uh, be working with all Albertans rather than just the um, sort of the, um, the, the core that the previous social credit government had relied on. And so they reached out. They they uh, they they brought in scientists and experts. They did a big resource inventory of the province. They looked at where all the different things that might be of value in the future were, where they overlapped, where there was conflicts, and they built a, a family of policies. One of them was the Eastern Slopes policy, which is still in effect today, uh, and the other one was this coal policy. So the coal policy was based. And remember, uh, back then. 1970s nobody's really talking about climate change if they were there was always a question mark involved mm -hmm. 
it was just a resource and it was a, an economic resource. Um, we were doing quite well on oil and gas in those days, so it wasn't like a high priority, but it was one that there was definitely a sector that was interested in seeing some development. So they said, well, where do we have coal in the province? Uh, where does that coal overlap with other things that are important to us? And what does that tell us about how best to develop our coal resources? And they came up with this policy. It had it was a it's a pretty simple policy uh, uh, on the face of it, but it was actually very enlightened and very forward looking. Um, and so what it did was it it said, okay, um, amongst other things, we're going to actually act like owners and make money from our coal if we sell it. Uh, we forgot that subsequently. We don't make money from, much money from our coal. <laughs> But, uh, but back then, you know, uh, that was really Lawheed's thing was act like an owner, right? Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. They had a royalty structure that they set up. The other thing they did was they created four categories of land. And that's the important piece for the current discussion because most of the coal policy was removed incrementally by subsequent decisions. But the coal categories remained. Category one was highly protected areas. It was things like national parks and, you know, Peter Lawheed Provincial Park and, you know, places that you're just never going to mine. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the highest mountaintops on the continental divide, probably no coal there anyway. Um, and so was, category one was out of bounds completely to coal development. Category two, they said, well, you know, these are places that are either really remote or have very little infrastructure or have very high environmental values, especially water values, watershed values. And uh, and wildlife habitat values, too, because uh, they're on the front ranges where a lot of our best bighorn sheep and elk ranges are. So they said uh, category two. Well, we'll issue coal leases and and um, we'll consider allowing people to explore uh, that coal, but we, but we will not allow coal strip mining. We won't let you take the tops off the ground to get at the coal beneath. If you want to get coal, you're going to have to have to go in underground, you know, like uh, um, the old old style coal mines. So that was mm -hmm. category two. And it covered most of the eastern slopes. It was like if you've ever gone into the forest reserve and you got on the old forestry trunk road, Highway 40, north mm -hmm. from, uh, from uh, the Bow, you're going right through the heart of zone two, all that beautiful foothills country with those big trout streams and, and uh, bighorn sheep ranges, elk herds and things like that. That's zone two, category two. Then category three, uh, it was a little bit less uh, conflict with other resource values and uh, still important. It, um, things like Wabam and places like that were in category three. You could develop there, you could do strip mining there, but still there was a there was an environmental rigmarole you had to go through to make sure you got, got it right. And category four was the lands that were already allocated to coal, you know, pre-existing coal mines, things like that. So that was what they put in place. And it was it was smart. It, it allowed the province subsequently to develop its coal resources, but not to do it in places where it would cause harm. Uh, I don't think most Albertans were even aware of it. We were just aware of the consequences. We lived in a province that sort of worked that way. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, buying coal mines at Keep Hills or up at, uh, at Wobbleman, you could find a couple up near Hinton. Um, but for the most part, when you went through coal-bearing lands, you didn't see coal mines because it was that land was considered to be too valuable for other purposes. And that's the part that the government stripped away on the Friday afternoon before last May long weekend, uh, which is when governments always do things that they have to announce, but they don't want us to notice. Uh, and for a while, not too many people no did notice, but my gosh, everybody's noticed now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's quite the big, uh, over the past couple of weeks, um, uh, it, my social media feeds are just full of people commenting and sharing links to articles and sharing links to petitions uh, or sharing links to 
uh, local local counties or cities or villages or towns or town councils who have have written um, the provincial government to uh, to ask to return to the return to the return to the 1976 policy, which, as you say, was was uh, rescinded on a, on a Friday afternoon before a long weekend. I think the 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 term in politics we like to use is taking out the trash, and that's what that's what governments do. At you know they send out their press release or they release their orders in council at about you know, 4.30 or 5.01 p.m. on a Friday before the long weekend when most most serious journalists have, uh, you know, are, are, are have filed their stories or are away away for the weekend and no one's really paying attention. Um, so the, the rescinding of the Category 2, I mean, rescinding of the coal policy, you said the, one, one of, the, one of the, the big part of the discussion is around the impact on these Category 2 lands. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is the impact of... Uh, of open pit. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people will under, will understand this already. But but, what is the impact of of removing those protections from these category two lands? And I mean, like the impact on on the land uh, itself and on Alberta, because this is a bigger. Because as we 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 talk about headwaters and we talk about water, this has a bigger impact on the entire province of Alberta. Well, to answer that question, you've got to look at two different things, and hopefully I remember to mention them both. One of them is actually how landscapes work, and then the other one is is um, where where water is distributed in the province of Alberta. And if you look at the province of Alberta, we are a water-short province. Our, we got little rivers. Geez, you know, you go to Ontario, and they call things creeks that we would call, like, major rivers. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> right? So so we are, we are a water-short region, and... Um, most of the place, part of the province where we live, we consume water, but we don't generate water. Like, we, you know, we live in a semi-arid desert, you know, from Edmonton South, right? Uh, it's grassland. Uh, grassland is, by definition, when you look at it, that's landscape that is not wet. If it was wet, it would be forested. If you want to see where we get our water from, it's all that little strip of green that goes up the foresters or uh, goes up the west boundary of the province from the Crow's Nest Pass, south from Waterton Lakes National Park, Crow's Nest Pass, north to Grand Cache. And of course, there's also lots of water generation uh, in the northern part of the province, but it all drains off to the north away from where we all live. So that little strip of forested land, which we call the forest reserves along the western side of our province, is our source water area. All the rivers that we get our water from originate there in little creeks that come out of those little headwaters. So when you're looking at water security for the province of Alberta, you can build little dams all you want. They just slow down whatever water is available. But the water that's available actually comes from those landscapes. The landscapes are critically important. And it's interesting. I, I'm back in, in the 1880s, uh, they were already reserving those forested lands on our western boundary for their watershed value. Even back then when, when you know, the settlers haven't even started to really arrive here, uh, the people that were looking at the West were saying, yeah, this is going to be important. If water is going to be the thing we're going to run out of first and you can't live without it, so we got to protect that water generating area. So that's what the area we're talking about. That's where, that's where those category two lands are. That's why they were protected. Um, so what happened landscape is that uh, we get a lot of winter snow. The farther west you go, the higher up you go, the more snow you get. And it builds up a snowpack all winter long. That's basically a reservoir of water, frozen water, waiting to be used. Now in the spring, what happens in a healthy landscape when you've got forest and vegetation is that water, that snow melts slowly because it's sheeted. The ground thaws. 
And a lot of the, the, the snow actually melts into, into water that goes into the ground. And that's helped by the fact that when you've got healthy vegetation, you've got loose soil because the roots are always keeping it loose and making lots of little channels that water can go into. So, so and then in the spring rains, uh, you know, the spring rains peak in May and June when the ground is thoroughly thawed out. And again, uh, a lot of the spring rains go into the ground and they become groundwater. And that's really critical because that's the second big reservoir for almost all of our water as groundwater in the Rocky Mountains and the foothills. And then as groundwater, it moves very slowly through the ground, gets, it, it's kept cold, it gets cleaned, filtered, and eventually seeps out in springs or it comes out in the bottoms of rivers. You, know, you notice how you drive past a river and then five miles later you drive past and it's bigger. How'd that happen? Well, that's all the ground coming into the river, right? So that groundwater reservoir is really what we rely on for our river water and our river water is what we rely on for our economy. It supports everything. So protecting those eastern slopes is really around keeping them well vegetated and keeping healthy soils. The problem with strip mining and the reason that it has always been prohibited in zone two is that it requires that you strip off the vegetation you strip off the soil, then you strip off the rock, and you finally get the coal, and you strip out the coal, you dump the rock back in, try and do some reclamation. But in the process, what you've done is you've removed the ability to, to trap and hold snow. Uh, I mean, you're still going to get the snow, but it's going to melt fast in the spring and run off. You've reduced, you've, you've wiped off that, wiped out that groundwater infiltration process because the soil's gone, and you've actually disrupted all the groundwater flows. And so what, what, what ends up happening is that you have um, a, a watershed that no longer works properly. Now all the water runs off overland, takes a lot of silt with it because it's not being filtered in the ground, goes into the river in a rush in the spring, floods out our valleys, and is gone in the summer. And the summer is, of course, when we want water. Used to get water in the summer because it came out as groundwater all summer long. So on top of that, these mines use a lot of water. They use a lot of water to settle the dust. They use a lot of water to wash the coal. And they're taking that water out of those little tiny creeks. You know, they're not taking it out of the big river that down where we live. They're taking it out of the headwater creeks. And so it's very, it doesn't take long before they've depleted these creeks. And then in addition to that, they crunch up all the rock. And that rock was stable before. Now it's it's been broken open and exposed to the elements. It's full of little soluble minerals and things like selenium, which are actually toxic in high concentrations. And those are exposed to the rain, and the rain washes the salts out, dumps them into the river, in, into into the streams. And so now you've got streams that flow mostly in the spring rather than all year round. Streams that are full of silt and mud that have less water than they would have had before because you've used a lot of water for the coal, and the water is polluted. So if you're thinking about what the future of this province needs, we need a water supply. We need a reliable, clean water supply. What the future of this province doesn't need is coal. Coal's an option. It's one economic option. And in fact, it's not even very popular right now because coal's a, a fuel that whether you use it in steel making or for thermal generation of, of electricity, it produces carbon dioxide. We're not big on carbon dioxide these days. It's not our friend. So it's very bizarre to a lot of us that we would swap uh, the temporary riches of coal strip mines for our security and for the landscapes that provide that water security. I've just been talking about water. Mm -hmm. A lot of other things need vegetation, right? 
like almost all wildlife and a lot of other things need healthy streams like all sorts of you know the trout and things like that and we kind of like to recreate in beautiful spots uh, so there's all these reasons why we are getting a lot of economic value and ecological value from these landscapes right now that will be squandered if we decide to reinterpret our eastern slopes and say this is no longer a water generating area this is now a coal generating area it, it seemed to be a very bizarre decision when it was first made i mean Albertans, I, I, I wrote a piece on my on my on my website this week talking when I was talking about the all these communities that have are calling for the the coal policy to to be put back in place, calling for more more real consultation from the provincial government over this. And I mean, the thing that that really I mean that really continues to strike me is that Albertans are we're very proud of our Rocky Mountains. We're very proud of of you know these beautiful majestic mountains that that uh, I mean really they. The, the federal government created national parks, you know, to protect, to preserve and conserve Banff National Park. I mean, the entire national park system was created in part because of our beautiful Rocky Mountains. And it just seemed very bizarre that, you know, at the same time, <clears throat> I mean, last fall, the, the provincial government released a, a video promoting the NHL tournament in Edmonton. Uh, and it was all these beautiful pictures of the, of the Rocky Mountains and of Jasper and of Banff, uh, which surprised people like me from Edmonton because, I mean, I love the Rockies, but you know, Edmonton does not look like look look like that at all. But it's absolutely something we should be bragging about because they are beautiful. And you're right; it's 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 not only not only just to look look at, but to recreate at and and to preserve the types of wildlife and the types of you know the flora and fauna and, and enjoy and allowing allowing it to be there for people to enjoy it. So it seemed kind of, I mean, totally counterintuitive for at the same time the government to be rescinding this policy to be opening coal. When you're right at the at, you know in, when you talk internationally, I mean. Coal very much seems like, uh, you know, a retrograde industry in terms of opening new open pit coal mining. It's not really where the world, the, where the world is heading. Not that there isn't coal expansion going on in other parts of the world, but it's not really the direction that that uh, that that Canada or that that most that most other countries are going going in. Um, which which brings me to the part that the I mean, my question around what supporters of this mine of the of of opening up these mines would say and and they're not necessarily as i mean i've seen some people who are vocal about it they're not necessarily as numerous or they're not speaking up um but what would you say to people who want who think that this would be a, a good you know job creation uh, a good way to create jobs. And I say that because I, th I look at someone like Sonia Savage, who's the energy minister, and I look at where the background she comes from. She came from oil and gas. She was a lobbyist. She worked for oil and gas companies. The The UCP government was elected in 2019 on a platform of jobs, the economy, and pipelines. And jobs is, 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 is I, th I think they were, maybe they were so focused on trying to open things up and trying to create jobs that, that maybe, you know, maybe they didn't think they needed to consult on something like this. So, I mean, why, why to, to the people who, who, who are in some of these communities who might want to might want to take advantage of the jobs that were created through this? What would you say to them? Well, it, it is difficult, right? I mean, especially if you're uh, if if you're not doing well, and and right now in this economy, a lot of people aren't doing well, and so so you know the the stress that um, many people are living with and the uncertainty, uh, you know, it makes something like this look pretty attractive because because potentially there's going to be some jobs there for people that they don't have right now. And for regions that uh, are are um, are struggling, it's interesting that if you look at Crow's Nest Pass, their actually their unemployment rate is no different from the rest of the province. Even though we always hear about the uh, you know, Crow's Nest Pass first whenever we're talking about coal mining, I think another thing that though that I would challenge some of that on is 
you know, the reason that some of these communities are so aggressive and so hostile and so determined that they want to fight for these coal mines. And there are those pockets like that, you know, uh, that where, where, where um, it's really a matter of, uh, uh, of uh, either you're with us or you're against us when it comes to coal mining. Um, that very dynamic, I think people should pause and take a look at that because what that tells us is the problems that coal creates. Because coal companies come into a community, of course, they, they groom them like crazy, they spend money up front like crazy to get uh, everybody on board. They milk the landscape of its riches. They move most of the money offshore into uh, investors' bank accounts, and then they leave. And we've seen that repeatedly in the Crow's Nest Pass. We've seen that repeatedly in Grand Cash. I mean, Grand Cash is like somebody keeps flick flicking the light switch. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're alive. Oh, you're on life support. Oh, we need some more coal for another contract. You're alive again. And and this is not a sustainable economy. And this is not a great way to sustain a community. Uh, it means that you're constantly on the edge of disaster and hoping for the next big boom. And the next big boom comes, yeah, but then it doesn't last and you're on the edge of disaster again. So we need jobs. We need an economy. But it has to be a little bit more sustainable than this. And, and uh, to pin all of our hopes in coal at a time when the world is working like crazy to get off coal, where they're, where they're, where they're coming up with new ways of, of smelting and, and producing uh, metals, where they're already uh, trying to get, you know, move away from coal for generating ele electricity, to glom onto it again at this time in history is really an act of desperation that's not going to take us anywhere. In 10 or 15 or 20 years, coal will be so archaic. Uh, nobody will be, be be shopping for it, and we'll have sacrificed our watersheds for it for a few short-term jobs. So, no, I, I totally sympathize. I mean, I, I I've I've lost my job. I know what it's like to lose everything. I, I've been there. Uh, my wife and I we lost everything in the mid '80s. Um, so I know what it feels like. But you know what? Um, sympathizing with how it feels to be unemployed or to, or to, to be uncertain about your economic future doesn't necessarily automatically translate to saying, okay, it's time to burn down the house because it'll keep us warm for another day. And that's really what we're talking about here. You know, um, uh, we have many economic options. We, our problem Frank, right, right now, frankly, if you want me to be blunt politically. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, go for it. Our government doesn't think about them. Our government only sees carbon. It only sees oil and gas. And now for some reason, I guess because oil and gas didn't, uh, they couldn't save it with uh, bluster and yelling. Uh, they're going to try and generate a desperation move and move into another branch of carbon, which is coal. But, you know, those, those are just one resource industry. We have so many other resources here. We have more water. We have more, I mean, so we, we have more sun and more wind than almost anywhere else in the province. Those generate energy. And we mm -hmm. don't to be in the energy business you know that's that's something that only happened in the last 30 or 40 years uh we have agriculture we have agri agri foods we have uh movies and, and uh, you know uh, public services all sorts of ways in which you can make a living and build an economy and sustain it uh we just don't know how to think about anything except carbon and it's time to get past that because now we're starting to burn the furniture and burn the walls of the house in order to try and keep one more day of warmth going in our economy. On December 12th, 1921, Edmontonians went to the polls and made history. At the time, Edmonton was just a tiny place on the map, comprised of just 59,000 people and still reeling from the devastating aftermath of a world war and a global pandemic. 
During that election, a woman the press described as a housewife received 3,341 votes and became our city's very first female councillor. Her name? Izina Ross. Join me, Stacey Brotzel, and my co-host Kim Ann Wilson on January 19th when we launch Searching for Izina, Unwomanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, that endowment fund can start distributing funds. You can learn more about Edmonton Community Foundation, and you can check out its amazing podcast, The Well-Endowed Podcast, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonking and produced by Lisa Pruden at ecfoundation.org. And I think about those communities down in the Crow's Nest Pass. I mean, even even going up the Bow Valley, communities like Canmore, uh, and then going down, you know, uh, Pincher Creek, Fort McLeod. These, you know, these towns, maybe Blairmore, for example, that that were. I mean, they they were coal towns. You go back a hundred years ago, and this is why you know a lot of these communities were were founded. And I wonder about. I mean, obviously, they're not they're not as they're not the same type of coal town as they were a hundred years ago because we're not doing that the same this that you know they're not that industry doesn't exist anymore and i wonder about these communities and i'm sure um that there are people in these communities who have you know worked for decades to try to whether it's economic development or or, or whatnot but trying to find a new focus and, and a new way a new economy uh for to, to keep to keep these types of communities alive so i mean in terms of turning on and off the switch i think that's that sounds like a i mean i know you're talking about grand cash which is kind of a unique situation up 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 uh, up north of jasper um but it seems like in a kind of an appropriate metaphor in terms of of you know opening and closing and opening and closing the uh, the coal industry well I, I think i think you've touched on something else that's important here when you look at communities like pincher creek Lairmore, crow's nest pass um uh canmore um these are all places that used to be coal yeah mm -hmm. you, you know a, a, a dominant piece of their economy and now they're much more diversified, you know, like, like Canmore is extremely prosperous um, and it's all based on basically uh, uh, tourism, recreation, sport, retired baby boomers. Uh, but there's there's different ways in which the, uh, the, this community has been able to capitalize on its natural assets to build a much more sustainable economy than it had back when it was this underground coal mining. Um, one of the problems when you start strip mining the headwaters is you actually destabilize other parts of the economy because th those downstream water users rely on the, that water to sustain the, the parts of the economy that actually are still working they, that don't go switch on and off things like livestock agriculture irrigation we have two-thirds of canada's irrigation in this province it all relies on water that comes from the headwaters of the bowen old man and north saskatchewan river so um uh it's not it's it's not as if coal is our only option or even the most important option even in the areas that have a coal mining history there are many other economic sectors already in place and some of those are very vulnerable to the kinds of harm we're going to do if we strip mine our eastern slopes uh, i've talked to a number of tourism operators ecotourism operators and backcountry lodge operators they're freaked right out because they they, they had always assumed under the eastern slopes policy and the coal policy 
that their investment was secure. And now they're seeing uh, the potential of strip mines opening next door. They're already seeing uh, applications for coal development, which involves bulldozing their scenery to find coal. So, um, you know, I, I sympathize with people that think that coal is their future. Um, I, but I, I got to say it's their past uh, and their future has an awful lot of other things in it. As long as we don't sacrifice our water quality and our scenic, scenic eastern slopes for one last kick at the coal cat. So one of the things that this um, this reminded me of this the whole discussion and debate around around coal and uh, coal mining and the, and the coal policy is it has a similar feel to the debate we had last year over provincial parks and it's probably even an ongoing debate over provincial parks and it just seemed like the the government really like struck a nerve that um resonated or or not not resonated isn't, isn't the right word but struck a nerve that got a real uh reaction from a huge cross-section of society in alberta and i mean the, the the debate i mean the defend alberta parks uh folks from that campaign you know highly successful campaign uh more than twenty thousand lawn signs across the province from edmonton to calgary to you know to everywhere um uh, you know, thousands of people writing letters to their to their MLAs. Um, you know, the government eventually kind of backed backed away or, or appeared to back away right before Christmas. We'll see what exactly comes from that policy. Um, but the coal issue seems to it, it has like a lot of similar themes. It's something that it's it appeals to people. I mean, people in rural Alberta and people who live in the area in the eastern slopes areas who who will who will be able to actually see the impact of it, understand it, and it feels like people also inside the cities uh, also understand that it's it's bridging that kind of urban rural divide that sometimes we see on in political issues in Alberta. And I mean, I think that goes back to the, I mean, to to the base of um, Albertans love the Rocky Mountains, and they don't want to. They you know they understand that you know you see a picture of an open pit strip mine, and you know in, immediately that that's not good for for a mountain. Well, it's I think there's three three dynamics happening here. Um, uh, and, 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 and it's sort of funny, like, like it, it's a highly stressful, uh, thing we're dealing with right now because, uh, we've got a, a government sort of acts a little bit like rural, rural government. Uh, they, they just, they just do what they want, you know, and they don't even tell you. Uh, and, and so that's, that's pretty stressful to be dealing with it. And yet it's also inspiring because this coal issue has pulled together Albertans like they've never been pulled together before. The point you made, there's no rural urban split. In fact, a lot of the a lot of the opposition is being driven from the rural parts of the province. Mm -hmm. There's no political split. We got UCP, NDP, Liberal, Alberta Party, uh, the farther right parties. Uh, it doesn't matter what your politics are, you're part of this campaign. Um, the First Nations are taking a big active part, and they're being supported by an awful lot of the environmental groups and the and the ranching groups. And so, it's it's in some ways you've got to sort of say thank you, Jason Kenney. You pulled us all together. <laughs> uh, that was never his intention. That's and, not what he meant by Unite Alberta when he ran on the, under that slogan. Yeah, yeah, well done. You did it. You just did it by accident. Uh, <laughs> but but what's pulling people together is, is, is three things. One of them is that we're deeply offended. You don't do these things. You don't do major policy initiatives like this without consulting us. And we're a little bit horrified because you also should do your homework. And there was they, they did no homework on this and they did no consultation on this. The only people they talked to was the Coal Association of Canada, uh, which is led by a former Tory um, uh, environment minister, ironically. Uh, yeah, Rob, Robin Campbell. Yeah, 
Melvin Campbell, yeah. Um, so, so they, you know, they've inter they've offended us. Like they, 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 they've done something that they shouldn't have done, and they could have taken the effort to talk to us, or at least they could have told us they were thinking about it when they were running for election. They never raised this issue in their campaign ever. They never told us this was coming. They just told us that it had happened. Well, that's really offending a lot of people. The other one is is, is that uh, water is a much more uniting issue than parks. I think parks really had a big urban rural split to it, uh, to a large degree. But this one unites everybody. And and if you're in agriculture in Alberta, you know how important water is, and you know how limiting water is. So so there that was the other one. And the third one is that one you mentioned is that we all identify with our mountains. Uh, ever since this province started, people have resorted to the mountains to escape the summer heat and enjoy the, the, the beauty. And um, and there are families with deep traditions of camping along the forest reserve, hunting elk and sheep in the fall, fishing for trout in those streams. And they have just discovered that the place that uh, is in the backdrop of all their family photographs is potentially going to be a strip mine. So those three things have all pulled people together. And I don't think we will ever go back to where we were before. This is, I think, the inspiring part of this. I think that Alberta has finally wakened up to the fact that we are responsible for who we are. And who we are is where we are. And where we are can't be taken for granted. I think that's that's that, that that's a marvelous thing that's happened. Um, I'm not sending a, a thank you letter to uh, Jason Kinney, Jason Nixon, or Sonia Savage on that one. But I am grateful that it happened. Um, I think we're going to win this one because uh, you, you, once you've mobilized the giant of democracy, um, you either get out of the way or you get run over. And uh, um, I think that just like they had to blink on the parks issues when Albertans uh, gathered up and said, no, this is not where we see us going, even if it's where you want to take us. Um, this one's a, a much, much bigger movement and it's a much, much stronger and more visceral reaction. Um, they've got a blink on this one. I, if they don't, well, um, Albertans like to vote out of anger. We'll get a different government. <laughs> we are, we've, we've newly discovered in Alberta that we uh, that we like to change government more than once every forty years. So maybe you know maybe 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 that'll stick. And I think you're right. If we you know if if we continue if this government continues to act the way they did, and I mean the way they do they have been, and making decisions unilaterally has been kind of a uh, it's been it's been kind of one of the key characteristics of this government, unfortunately, and and I've noticed more recently they've stopped using the the kind of the the talking point of you know the last election the, our our big win in the last election was the only consultation we needed, and I think that you know the uproar over parks, the uproar over coal, uh, the the issues with 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 healthcare, the fights with the doctors, the teachers' pensions, the whole long list has really no one really believes that talking point when you're when your party is the second place in the polls and your approval your, your leader's approval rating is 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 in the tank um, yeah, they, but, these guys these guys sort of work always as if they're uh, running in the last election is they tend to forget that they actually want it and they're supposed to be governing now so it's always uh, it's always opposition attack language right and, yeah yeah the other speaking point i don't hear anymore is well you're just quoting ndp to talking <laughs> And I think they've stopped saying that because they suddenly realized that they were actually telling all, everybody in Alberta, well, if you think this way, you're NDP. That's not going to work out too well for them. <laughs> so re reverse psychology, perhaps. Yeah. Um, one of the things about consultation is that that, that surprised me uh, when when the UCP formed government and started making these decisions was back, back when the NDP were in government and um, Shannon Phillips was Minister of Environment and Parks. There was all this 
uh, discussion around the creation of the Bighorn, um, Bighorn Recreation Area, the Bighorn, Bighorn well, it, was, it wasn't necessarily, I don't think it was a provincial park, but it's a park system or something like Kananaskis, essentially, through the Bighorn area. Um, and one of the major criticisms that that was leveled against the NDP by Rocky Mountain, Rimby Rocky Mountain House, Sundry MLA, Jason Nixon, was that he believed that the government didn't do en enough consultation around this. So, so it, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, the the pot calling the kettle black isn't I don't think that's the right the right uh, the right analogy but uh, but uh, I mean there's there's def, def, definitely a bit of a bit of hypocrisy going on here and I, I before we, we we touch on some of the more recent developments I, I I just wanted to get your thoughts on we learned over the past couple of weeks that through different media reports that the government of Alberta had been lobbied or had reached out or had written government ministers had written letters um, in support of land leases and development by large a large australian coal company in terms of and i think i think these this was around the category two lands and there were leases from what i understand there were leases that were that were written up and then removed or rescinded a couple of weeks ago by sonia savage and kind of their first kind of the first backtrack that they had on this issue when when the public uproar really started to get to to get um uh to get uh, to get very loud. Now, do you know, was there any work done in between that period I mean, before the leases were those, I think 11 leases were rescinded? Like, was there any exploration work done up on the mountains by these Australian, by this Australian mining company? Uh, well, there's several Australian mining companies and some okay. Canadian mining companies as well. And uh, um, what happened was that they, they had already been negotiating with the government behind closed doors, as you say, for quite a period of time, strangely enough, their you know their 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 flirtation was with our environment minister, who was flirting right back. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how an environment minister promotes coal strip mining, but there we go. Um, so they had been working on this for quite a while. So as soon as the government announced the revocation of the coal policy, um, they had had a whole bunch of. Uh, lease applications in the works. There was a, most of the most of this zone two area was had lease applications sitting on it, and right away they triggered the process of turning those lease applications into actual leases. And so there was a huge leasing boom all up and down the eastern slopes um, early last year, and then a few more leases were issued in December, or late, late fall, like you say, and they were revoked. But those early ones were not revoked, so they really mm. only spoke about half of a percent of the land that's now leased for coal, uh, just not, nothing, just a, 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 a virtually unnoticeable when you look at what's out there. And uh, and yes, coal exploration permits were issued to a couple of those companies. Um, one in particular, um, it's funny, We in the government spin on this, they say, well, don't worry, we have lots of great environmental regulations and we, you know, we're going to be watching these guys and enforcing them, right? Well, Elan Coal, um, wanted to go in to an area that's critical wildlife habitat in the spring when animals are having their babies and the area is closed to industrial use, they asked for access and within one working day they had a permit from the Alberta Energy Regulator. So that tells you that they, no biologist, nobody looked at that, they just rubber stamped it. And then in the fall they wanted to stay in when the animals were coming out of their winter ranges, within less than a day they had their permit. So this is how rigorous our environmental regulations are. And um, when these guys are doing their mineral exploration, what they're doing is they're bulldozing, usually at a zigzag because they're going up a mountainside uh, or a hillside, and um, and then putting in drill pads and they're drilling cores out to look at the quality of the coal, and the depth of the coal, that sort of stuff. And so it's quite a big physical disturbance. These are all zigzag 
bulldozed cots in our watershed. And what they do is they become runoff funnels for rainwater and snowmelt. And so the damage to our watershed has already started and they haven't even started mining. Wow. You know, I, I years ago, I mean, uh, when that, that, I mean, that one of the things, one of, one of the talking points that, that I've heard the government use is trust in the regulator. And I mean, when I hear from my, my the first thing I think of when I think about, uh, uh, you know, having having trust in the regulators. I mean, first of all, trust is earned. And we talked about this on the podcast last year. I think we had Andrew Leach come on, um, professor from the U of A, come in and talk about orphan wells. And oh no, we had uh, Reagan Reagan Boychuk and 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 um, and Tina Fey's come on talk to talk about uh, orphan wells. And when I look at the kind of the track record that the energy regulator has on issues like orphan wells and abandoned wells and kind of this this. These, you know, this this system of of, of abandoned and orphaned and uh, wells that are across the province um, and not going to be cleaned in some cases probably not going to be cleaned up in a long time simply simply because the the, the financial resources and the the manpower aren't there. Um, that's the first thing I, th I think about when I say or when I hear the, the government talk about oh well you know we need to trust the regulator in terms of doing this. I wish we could trust the regulator, but but I think that there's a there 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 is a real a real trust issue. What one we talk about we talked about Australian mining companies and obviously there are Canadian mining companies and Canadian mining companies have a horrible reputation internationally uh, in Africa and around the world um, not necessarily just Canadian companies mining companies in general um, but I remember um, about ten years ago my wife and I were um, were traveling through Australia we took a, a three three or four weeks and we went traveling through Australia and we went up to Kakadu National Park which is way up in the Northern Territory we had to fly all the way up to Darwin and then uh, and then hop on a hop on a little bus and and take a uh, take a, a bus to Kakadu National Park which is absolutely phenomenal it's kind of the crown I think from what I understand it's kind of the crown jewel of the national park system in Australia it's this massive national park and um, it's a very, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. We did a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of hiking, a lot of, we did some backcountry camping. It was, it was really amazing. There's lots of crocodiles and snakes and tree frogs everywhere. Um, and it was like 30 degrees with like 90% humidity and, and, uh, but it was, it was really wonderful. Um, and it's a very important and very, it's a very important place for the Aboriginal people in Australia. There's some very, there's, it's sacred land. There's some very important, um, important historic sites. A very, you know, there's large, a large ab Aboriginal community up there. And one of the, there's one site in particular, and I, I can't remember the exact name, but they call it the, I, th I think they call it the Rainbow Serpent, and it's a very important, a very important rock. Um, if I'm, if I'm rem remembering it correctly, and my, my apologies to Australian, any Australians who are listening, if I get this wrong, I'll look it up after the podcast. But near this, there is a. Not far, there is a giant uranium mine, and I think it was called the Ranger Mine, and it's a huge, basically a huge strip mine. It's a giant crater in the earth that 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 uh, that these mining companies have come in and created, and they, um, and it's in in it's either inside or right on the edge of the national park, but it's close enough that the seismic um, whatever explosions or the work that they do in the in the strip mine has an impact on the park because it shakes everything, right? So um, instead of uh, you know, not strip mining this uranium uh, out of the you know one of the most beautiful places in the country. Um, they it, instead it, to to track if any damage is going is is going on. They have like a seismometer, like a a, a size yeah. reader right beside the rainbow serpent to basically make sure that that the rock doesn't move. So instead of stopping the mining, uh, which is which is doing you know quite quite a bit of damage to the area, uh, they 
basically put a machine that makes sure that they can slow down or or, or lessen the, the the explosions uh, or the intensity of the explosions if it if it moves the rock an inch or two um, and has an impact on this uh, this uh, this this monument or this very important piece of of uh, sacred piece of Aboriginal history in, in in Australia. So that was kind of one of the first things I thought about when I when I uh, when I'd heard about these Australian coal mining companies coming and and making applications and talking with the provincial government was, you know, okay, well that's that didn't necessarily sound like a great uh, a great place to start great place to start for me but that was kind of the, the the first thing that the first thing that popped that popped into my head and it might be a little might be a little non sequitur but I thought it would be uh, a story I would share. Um, well, it's, it's 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 very relevant because it's um it's it's the uh, it's it's illustrative of the actual culture of the people that are coming to uh, to, to to our neighborhood. Uh, these guys talk sweet and kind and lovely and helpful and make all sorts of promises when they arrive into town. They, they're used to doing it. It's what they do every single time. And I've been around for so long now. I've heard resource industry people in forestry and in, uh, in mining. You know, they're, they're, one of their things they say is, well, yeah, we used to make a mess. We don't do it like that anymore. Well, you know, they do. They just, <laughs> but by the time that you have to live with the consequences, they've already pocketed their profits, profits and left town. Um, uh, but we fall for it every time, just like Charlie Brown, when Lucy holds that football for him, we wind up and trying to give it another kick. And sure enough, we're left with another big, big uh, leaking hole with pollution and part reclaimed landscape. Uh, so yeah, this, this it's, it's, it might not seem like a relevant anecdote, relevant anecdote, but it's highly relevant. Um, this is who's invited themselves to town. So this week or this past week, San, Sonia Savage, uh, Alberta's energy minister, announced that, and, and obviously in a reaction to to the outpouring of criticism towards the government around about rescinding the 1976 poll policy, she announced that there'd be a new policy that she'd be rolling out this week. And I mean, we don't really know what we don't really know what what is actually going to be included in the details. Um, we'll we'll find out soon, I guess. Um, it's something that they uh, they wrote. It seemed to have. I mean, they obviously didn't have time to do much, do much consultation uh, on this, or to kind of do the, the the proper things that that a government would need to do uh, to create a you know a wholesome policy. But what 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 would you what I, mean, I guess what what either what do you expect to see in the policy, or what what would you like to see in the policy? What 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 would it, what would either um, what would improve the 1976 policy? Like, is it enough just to to bring back the policy and 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 reimplement the protections over the Category Two lands, or is is there a way that Alberta can improve? Well, what I expect to see in it is uh, is more um, more uh, double speak and uh, um, pat in the head. We're we're not going to blow the tops off any mountains, and don't worry. And uh, you know we're we're, we're you know, um, we're going to regulate the heck out of these people and nothing will change. That's what I expect because, um, you know, they've definitely burned some bridges here uh, in terms of letting these leases out. What I would hope we would see, um, frankly, I don't think it's enough just to bring back the, the 1976 coal categories. Um, they've unleashed Albertans and uh, Albertans have educated themselves. Um, and what I've been hearing uh, in the, I think, 27,000 Albertans that are now on one Facebook site is that, yeah, people say bring back the coal policy, but what they're saying, what they're really saying is bring it back because we don't want strip mining in our mountains. And so if they want to come up with a, a draft coal policy, because they have no right to bring up, uh, to, to develop a new policy without consulting us uh, at, at, on something at this scale, 
But if they want to come up with a draft policy, really, it, what it should say is that in the forest reserves of Western Alberta, there will be no strip mining. And there will be no coal exploration because there's no point in exploring for coal if you're not going to strip mine it. Uh, well, maybe there is if there's underground mine potential, but uh, the companies don't like underground mining because it's too expensive and they have cave-ins and things like that. So um, really what they should come up with is at least an interim policy of saying no strip mining in these eastern slopes. And then there, are, the, 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 one of the things that's lost on this is this, this government acts as if this province has no history. And as if this province has nobody who's ever been engaged in these sorts of discussions. I've been around now, geez, I'm a retired guy. I've been around for a few decades. I've been involved in a lot of planning processes. I've been involved in lobbying a lot of different governments on different issues. And there are layers and layers and layers of human effort of people, of, of Albertans that have left their kitchen tables, left their kids, left their jobs to go and go to meetings with the government to work, uh, to work on maps, to w help them plan and build policies. And they have brought us to the day where we are today. You don't just cut that off and throw that away and say, well, you know, we're the new guys in town, we got a majority, so we're just gonna give you a bunch of new policies. We, we worked it out with the coal, poly, coal companies. I hope, hope you guys don't complain too much because this is what we're doing. You just don't do that. That's arrogant, that's inexcusable. That, that, that has so little respect for both current generations of Albertans and all the ones that built the, the, the policy framework that, 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 you, that this government has inherited and that have slaved to keep those places good. So I would also hope that whatever they come up with is interim and that they commit to finally, respectfully consulting with Albertans. Frankly, I don't think they can get away with it, with it if they don't. Um, you know, if they, wanna, if they wanna destroy themselves politically, um, it'll be pretty easy at this point. But if they wanna redeem themselves, they're gonna have to give us protection for our headwaters from strip mining and they're gonna have to, and, and they're gonna have to give us a consultation process before they change that to anything else. Well, I think you're right. I think that uh, Albertans are not going to not going to be happy with not going to be pleased or or acquiesced with with uh, with half measures on this issue. And and I think the voice of, I mean, the as you said, you know, twenty seven thousand people in one Facebook group. I mean, I've seen petitions, online petitions, where there are you know ninety thousand people or a hundred thousand people who've signed these petitions. Um, this has really uh, engaged. Uh, a lot of Albertans who, you know, uh, a month or two ago might not have have known anything about the coal issue. So, um, we thank you very much, Kevin, for joining us today on the Dave Berta podcast. Thank you for sharing your insight, your knowledge, uh, your experience. Uh, you are a, a, a wealth of knowledge on this issue, and I am sure I know for sure that our listeners will uh, will greatly appreciate the kind of uh, the background and the details you've been able to provide on this issue. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin, for joining us today. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Adam. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, thanks again. Well, thanks again to Adam Rosenhardt, our, our handsome producer, for making this podcast sound so great. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Uh, send us your feedback on Twitter and on Instagram at, at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can just send us an old-fashioned email at podcast at daveberta.ca. And if you feel like leaving a review uh, where, or a rating where you listen to the podcast, feel absolutely feel free to do that. We love that. Uh, feel free to share it with your friends and family uh, on social media. We, we always appreciate you guys uh, sharing the podcast around. Thank you so much. And we'll look forward to uh, talking to you guys in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm.